an atom is a very small particle. And if you know, if you've studied, what do you, when, when do you study atoms? Chemistry, right? Atoms made up of uh, subatomic particles. They're, they're, they're subatomic. An atom is so small that then you have these particles that make up the atom. They're called subatomic. They're an electron. You know this? I'm just thinking. A proton and a neutron. Very nice. Well, it's hard to appreciate how small an atom is, so just to try to get some idea, if you think of a baseball, which is about three inches in diameter, if you were to blow up an atom to the size of a baseball, to get the same proportion, when you blew up this atom to the size of a baseball, to get the same proportion, how big would you have to blow up the baseball to be? 3,000 miles high. Isn't that incredible? This tiny, tiny little atom made up of these even tinier subatomic particles is so small, but what do we all know about an atom? It packs a very powerful punch because what happens under the right conditions when you split an atom? You have an atomic bomb. You have an explosion. It's incredible that in something that you and I couldn't possibly see so small, what seems to be three sort of insignificant particles floating around, if, if you just take that apart, you realize how explosive that can be. And essentially, that's what we have in this one verse in 2 Timothy 2 chapter, I mean, chapter 2, verse 8. We have this one tiny little verse. If you're reading through your Bible daily, you can just sort of run on by it. But, but this one tiny little verse, made up of three particles, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, these three particles together are way more powerful than an atom. Because Paul says, this is the gospel. And you remember in Romans 1.17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God. So in the gospel, what we have is something far more powerful than an atomic explosion. Because the gospel is the actual power of God. And what does it do? For the salvation of anyone, anyone who would believe. So the gospel has the power to bring a dead person back to life. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to talk about this one little verse with these three little particles. And we're going to pray together that it would have the kind of forceful explosion into your life. And through your life into the world so that God might be glorified. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, today we're going to do something very simple. We're, we're going to unpack three tiny little phrases. But you have said, this is the gospel. This is the power of God. And so I am praying that you, through this one verse, that power be, would be manifested today 
in the lives of your people. For whatever need may need to be addressed, whatever shoring up may need to happen, whatever encouragement needs to take place, whatever wisdom needs to be gained so that the power can spread out through this community, we pray that that happens by your presence here with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's just unpack these three very simple phrases today. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember, I'm going to come back to that at our conclusion. But what is it that Paul is saying to Timothy? Remember, Paul is like a ship. He is departing the dock. He has said in chapter 4, I'm, I'm on my way out. And he's handing back this gospel to this young pastor in Ephesus. He's the one who's going to be left behind, this timid young man named Timothy. And Paul's handing back these very critical elements that Timothy must hold on to. And we've talked about a number of them. And here he's saying, Timothy, we've got to have this one perfectly clear. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus We've read this probably in your Advent reading at home. Matthew chapter 1, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be, to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with a child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So when, when Paul says, remember Jesus, Timothy, immediately, he understands what Paul's talking about. This isn't just any Jesus. Jesus could have been a common name back then because it was in the Greek, it was Jesus, but in the Hebrew, it was Joshua. And Timothy would have remembered, remember Jesus Christ. Yes, Joshua, the, the, the Lord is salvation. That's where salvation is coming from. And Timothy, being a good student of the Old Testament, certainly as a disciple of Paul, would have immediately brought up Joshua of the Old Testament. You remember him, the great general. And he takes the people out of the wilderness, across the Jordan River, into the Promised Land. And Joshua is an Old Testament shadow of the real Joshua who's yet to come. Jesus comes, and what is he doing? He's taking people out of the wilderness of their own sin. We got cast out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and we got cast out into the wilderness. And we can't get back. Somebody has to bring us back. And Joshua was a shadow of that, of the reality of the real Joshua who's going to come, who's going to take his people out of the wilderness of their own sin and bring them into the promised land, which is exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to save his people from his sin, from their sins and remember jesus christ christ is a title it's not a name it's not jesus's last name jesus christ 
is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the one who is to come. And so you remember when Jesus gets his disciples together and he says, hey guys, let's go on a little field trip. And he takes his disciples on this field trip to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which previously had the name Peneus, after the idol or the Greek god named Pan. That's where you get Peter Pan. And so in this town, in this location, this is where lots, this is sort of the center of idolatry. And Jesus is now taking his disciples to the center of idolatry, and he gets his disciples together in this city, and he looks at his disciples, and he puts himself on the stage with all of the world's idols, and what does he ask his disciples? Who do you say that I am? Imagine the humility humility of that just for a moment. That the creator would say, okay, let's line up all of the idols that you've worshipped and I'll stand up there and ask, well, what do you think? Who am I? Am I like one of these? Or I'm somebody different? And what does Peter say? You are the Christ. You are the one. You are the son of the living God. You're the one that all of the Old Testament has been pointing to. The Old Testament is like a great shadow that's been cast from some future event. And so we look and we say, yes, you're the person who's arrived. This is, this is the person that we thought was going to come. You're the one, Peter is saying. You're the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3. You're the seed of Abraham from Genesis chapter 22. You're the prophet like unto Moses, Deuteronomy 18. You're the priest in the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. You are the king of David, Isaiah 9. You are the virgin son, Isaiah 7. You are the messenger of a new covenant, Malachi 3. You are the Christ. You are the one. You're the anointed one. And Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, remember Jesus, the one who's going to save people from their sins, the one who's going to call people out of the wilderness and into life. The Christ, the one that everything has been pointing to, all of creation has been pointing to this one person, and he has come. And that's what we remember when we do our Advent wreath. That's what we remember during the year, that Jesus Christ has come. And so now let's just notice these two particles that seem to float around that make up the gospel. Risen from the dead and offspring of David. This is my gospel, Paul is saying. Isn't it interesting that just in these two little phrases he says this is a gospel. It's not terribly complicated. But somehow packed into these two phrases is all that Timothy needs to know. He's risen from the dead. He's the offspring of David. And this is really a shorthand way for Paul to tell Timothy that this person that's come is both human and divine. He's both the son of God and he's the son of David. And in this person is the power. You want to talk about power? Something that can change people's lives? This is it. This person, this God-man who's coming to the world, this is the person who changes lives. 
Wayne Grudem says this in his systematic theology. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, this fusion of the divine and human into one person known as Jesus Christ. Far more amazing than the resurrection. Far more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to a human nature forever will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. The most profound thing, according to Grudem, that's ever happened is that the God-man has entered into his own creation. The early church fathers wrestled with this idea, who was Jesus? Again, this is on the front of your bulletin, this first part of the Nicene Creed. And so in 325, I think it was, they said, well, how do do we think about this? We don't really have categories to think about the God-man coming into the universe. And so they come up with language like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who is, and they're trying to say he's divine, he's the God of God, he's the light of light, he's the very God of very God, he's one substance with the Father, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate in the flesh by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made a man. So let's just take these two phrases. He's the offspring of David. As as I said earlier, when you read through the Old Testament, one way to read through it is to think of it as a shadow. So all of these things are a projection of a future event. And this is the event. And so now we have the benefit of knowing what happens. And we can go back now and say, well, we're, we're looking at the Old Testament now through the lens of this one critical event. And one of the great shadows that's cast in the Old Testament is that of a king. And not just any king, but the king. And the king is going to come from David. And we read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declared to David that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring to succeed you. And your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. So here's the great promise to David that there will be a king that sits forever on the throne. And there, there will be this one king that comes and he will be your offspring, which is why Paul says the offspring of David. Jeremiah 23, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So everyone's leaning forward saying there's a king that's going to come. And one of the characteristics of the king is he's got to be from the line of David. He's got to be from the offspring of David. So Matthew, who has written his his gospel primarily to Jewish readers, In the very first verse, what does he say? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. I want you to know that the person I'm going to spend the rest of my gospel talking about, he's got the right documentation. 
He's coming from the right line. He's the offspring of David, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Luke chapter 2. But an angel said to them, do not be afraid. The angel's coming to the shepherds in the fields. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born, and he is Christ the Lord. He's the Christ. He's the one. And so that's what Paul is telling Timothy. And so everyone leans forward. Everyone in history sort of leaning forward and saying, yes, finally, there will be a day when the king comes. And just like every other king, what he's going to do is he's going to put our enemies to death. And we can't wait for that king to come. Just just imagine the, the, the king on horseback riding in and saying, finally, I'm here. I'm going to put your worst enemies to death. But see, Jesus was totally unexpected. Because he was the king. And he was going to put our worst enemy to death. But what is our worst enemy? Death. And how is he going to put death to death? See, he's a king on a cross. He's a king riding in and saying, Paul, your biggest problem is not with the the people in your town. Your biggest problem isn't with the government. Your biggest problem isn't with another people group halfway across the world. Your biggest problem isn't with your spouse or your family or the people in your church or your neighbor or your neighbor's barking dog. That's not your biggest problem. You may think those are your biggest problem, but I can tell you, you have a much bigger problem. And that problem lies inside of you. And it's called sin. And the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus comes, and he comes to be a king on a cross. It's nothing like anyone expected. When Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, what did God say? You will, you will surely die. And so Jesus comes, and he humbles himself. He takes on human form. He becomes a man, and he absorbs the death that we deserve. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews says it. Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were all their lives were held in slavery by fear of their death. See, that's the great news. That, that all, of, all of humanity is terrified of the day we're in the casket up front. If you ever go to a funeral, if you ever go to a wake and you walk by the body that's laying there, 
everybody asks, what's that like? What will it be like when I get there? What's going to happen? I'm terrified of meeting my maker. And Jesus says, I have come. And your reason you're terrified is your sin. And I've absorbed your sin. And I've given you my life so that you could stand before God. And you don't have to worry. What a relief. What great news. Second question, or next question. How do we know Jesus, the offspring of David, conquered death? I mean, it sounds great. Sounds that sounds great that he died, he took my penalty, and I don't have to fear facing a holy God. But what's the documentation? We've got the, the genealogy. We know he's from David, but what's the documentation that he's actually conquered death? And what is that? Risen from the dead. That's, that's the gospel. That's, that's the divinity of Christ. Paul says it in Romans 1. He says, He was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So how do we know that Jesus is the real one? Lots of people could claim to be the Messiah. Many people have claimed to be the Messiah. Many people say, I can take care of things. But how do you know Jesus took care of death? By his resurrection. He came walking out of the tomb. He conquered death. He said, listen to me. Touch me. Give me something to eat. I have conquered death. And where I am going, you're going to follow in my wake. I'm the first fruit of the tree, he says. So if I go to the apple tree and I pick off an apple and I see a blossom there, what do I know is going to come out of that blossom? Not a peach. Another apple. So Paul Phillips, in some way like Jesus, is going to come back. A little thinner. But come back. I'm not afraid of that anymore. Because he has said, Paul, you're going to come and follow me in this wake. And the reason you can have total confidence that it's not just what I said, it's what I did. I came back out of the tomb. I'm not just the son of man. I'm the son of God. I'm not just an offspring of David. I'm the offspring of God Almighty. I'm not just human. I'm also divine. That's what makes this one person totally unique. How do you know he paid for your sin? What if he's holding something, holding on to one thing? How do you know he paid it all? The resurrection is the receipt. It's totally finished when he hung on the cross what did he say it's finished i I paid for it you go to walmart i'm sorry you probably have to between now and christmas you've got the giant buggy they don't have smaller ones i've looked for smaller ones but you've got to get the 18 wheeler buggy and you go and you buy a lot of stuff that you need to put in your kids stockings let's say It's stuff you were going to buy anyway, and so you just stuff shampoo in their stocking, right? 
So it doesn't really cost you any extra money. You're going to get it anyway. That's not what we do at our house. I just understand people do use the stocking stuffers for that. You get there, you go through the line, then you've got a bag hanging on every digit, right? You're heading, you're just rolling towards the door, and who are you facing? The little old lady, right? She's got a little gun in her hand, and she's staring you down. And what does she want to see? She wants to see your receipt. Because you got a lot of stuff in your arms, and I want to see if you paid for all that. What's the receipt for the Christian? The resurrection. How do we know God paid for all of my sin? He came out of the tomb. He said it was finished. And so everybody in God's arms... He's saying to God, hey, God, I paid for all of this. That's the gospel. That's the power of God for the salvation of anyone who would want to believe. But remember the the first word? Remember, Timothy. Remember, Timothy. Jesus Christ. I mean, do you think Timothy was just going to go, wow, I was just about ready to forget it. I'm, I'm glad you reminded me real quickly. Like, I don't think so, although we can look back in the Old Testament and say that the track record was that people tended to forget. And you know when Israel tended to forget the most in times of their greatest prosperity? When they had all of their other needs met, they started thinking, I met those needs. And I must not need anybody else or anything else. But I don't think that's why Paul is telling Timothy to remember that somehow he might forget. Although that's possible, I think a clue is earlier in the verse. Paul says to Timothy, remember This is going to be critical, Timothy, for a first century pastor. This is going to be critical for a 21st century pastor. This is going to be critical for all of those who follow Christ. Because you're following a king who goes to a cross in order to bring people to glory. If you're following Jesus Christ... You're following a king who goes to a cross in order for many people to come to glory. And if you are following a king who goes to a cross in order to bring many sons to glory, where do you think you're going? To a cross. You see, Timothy might forget that. He might say, I'm not into suffering. I signed up for the easy road. And Paul says to Timothy in the first part of the chapter, join with me, Timothy, in my suffering. And don't forget, Timothy, when you're suffering, the chief shepherd suffered. And don't forget that his suffering led you to glory. 
It led many people to glory. So that when you're suffering as the pastor of your church, I want you to know that that may be the one place that many people are coming to glory underneath your suffering. As you're suffering as a Christian, and you're saying, I just don't get this. This doesn't make any sense to me. Did it make sense to any of the disciples at this point? No. But how was God using it to bring many people to glory? And so Paul is telling Timothy, Paul is telling me as the pastor of this church, Paul is telling you as a follower of Christ, join with me in suffering. And don't forget, don't forget Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David who came and he suffered so that people would see him. One commentator put it, like this when he was commentating on this verse from Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. One commentator said this, unlike some contemporary peddlers of the gospel, Jesus does not offer his disciples Verities, varieties of self-fulfillment, intoxicating spiritual experiences, or intellectual stimulation. He presents them with the cross. He doesn't invite them to try, a, try the cross on for size to see if they like it. He doesn't ask for volunteers to carry one for extra credit. This particular demand separates the disciples from admirers. Disciples must do more than survey the wonder, wonder, wondrous cross. They must do more than glory in the cross of Christ. They must do more than love the old rugged cross. They must become like Jesus in obedience and live the cross. Take up your cross means that you have matriculated in the school of suffering. Remember Jesus Christ. Paul says to Timothy, "Remember, I'm I'm pulling away from shore. Remember, remember the one who laid aside his own glory, Timothy, in order to take on human form, to become obedient to death, so that you might live. Remember the King on the cross, Timothy, so that when you're suffering under the weight of the sins of this world, when you have to absorb the blows from people inside your church as well as outside of your church. Remember this so that you'll know this is the way. This is the way. You're on the right path. You see, when, when I get to suffering, what is my immediate reaction? I've gone the wrong way. And Jesus is saying, you're on the right path. Because this road, your suffering, will lead many people to the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, this is just such a simple message. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. He is the God-man. 
the king. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the one who's come who will put our enemies to death. And yet we're still amazed at how your plan unfolded in the cross. And Lord, we say, many of us here say, we're following you. And you say, come, follow me. Take up your cross. So I I pray particularly this week when there can be the facade of joy where many people suffer under great disappointment, great anxiety, a tendency to depression. That those here who feel that way, that they would remember Jesus Christ. That, that the road to suffering, the road to enduring is the way many people that they may not know by name or ever see will come to glory. Lord, I thank you for Paul's encouragement to Timothy, and I thank you for his encouragement to us this day, this Sunday before Christmas. That as we celebrate your coming, we also will be willing to walk in your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.